This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is Alejandro Scanapie, CFO of uh, Globan, a software technology company, and you're listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 494. We look at a lot of the same metrics that we used to do, but the big difference, the profound difference, is the, the uh, level of detail and the timeliness, which is, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, a blessing because the things that you used to understand weekly, you now can understand daily. But the curse is there's just so much data available that you could spend the entire day just sifting through the day's results. So uh, it's really important that you have a mechanism and a team that can ingest that data and produce what I call so what for the management team. So we know the three or five things that we need to understand happen with the business that we can action immediately. And so we don't just produce, you know, reams and reams and reams and data and dashboards and things like that. And it's just, just too much to consume. One of Brett White's very first assignments as a CFO was also one of his toughest assignments. Back in 2001, White began the first of what are today five CFO tours of duty and was handed the task of downsizing his new company's workforce by a third, or 850 employees. Brett recalls this challenging career chapter and explains how his new company, MindBody, is stepping up to better manage and leverage its growing pools of data. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com.
Sure. So um, I can give you a, a few milestones which really shaped my career and kind of formed me to who I am uh, professionally and maybe personally. I think the first one was a real jolt, and it was, um, you know, I started my career in public accounting, and I did that for about four years, and then I left and I joined, uh, at the time, a, a relatively small software call, company called Oracle. And I joined uh, in the international group. There was about 30 of us in the international headquarters. And after about six months, I found out that the head of international uh, was in a fight with the head of Europe, and the head of Europe won. And so uh, overnight, uh, our, our team of 30 had a new boss. And about a week later, um, the HR folks came down one at a time, and they, they dismissed about 28 of the 30 of us. So I was sitting there in my office, and my boss had just been fired, and all my colleagues had been fired, and I was wondering, whoa, what's going on here? So at the end of the day, the, the, new, the new head boss, the new head of Oracle International came down. He was an English guy, and he said, hey, Brett, we're going across the street to the pub for a beer. Do you want to join us? I said, yes, I would. So <laughs> so I walked over there, and sure enough, there he was, and his, his mates from the U.K., they were his, his management team, and they were sitting there playing pool and a pitcher of beer on the counter. And uh, he said to me with a beer in his hand, he said, hey, uh, bet you're curious why you're still here. <laughs> I said, yes, I am. And he said, okay, well, your name was on the list, and I recognized your name because I remembered uh, a few weeks earlier I had a meeting with uh, Larry, who's Larry Ellison, he's the founder and CEO. I had a meeting with Larry, and I needed some information, and I called down, and you fixed the phone, and you, you know, pulled together a one-page summary and ran it up to me, and I read it, and I went in and looked smart to my boss. So when I saw your name on the list, I thought you might be someone worth keeping around. So I said, okay, that's pretty good. So, you know, my learning, my career learning there is that, that hustle matters. And uh, I personally, I apply it that, you know, don't defer something till tomorrow, which you can, you know, squeeze in today. So, you know, how do I apply that today? You know, if you give someone a task and they do it quickly and they do it well, you give them more. It's just human nature. And you give them more tasks, more responsibility, a larger role. And that's just, I think, an important element of career development because a lot of folks will just grab onto that and just blossom, and that's, that's your future, your management team. Uh, so the next milestone, I would say, came not long after that, since there was only, uh, you know, two or three of us left in the international group. Uh, the management team decided to start converting Oracle distributors in Latin America to Oracle subsidiaries. And so uh, I got tapped on the shoulder, and they said, Brett, uh, we want you to go down to Argentina and, and start an Oracle subsidiary, and, and, and then we'll just import the distributor into that, and we'll be off to the races. Well... Uh, what nobody knew is I was just totally unqualified to do that. I had no idea what to do. So I just, you know, got a hold of a lawyer and on, on the man, on the uh, Oracle team. We flew down to Buenos Aires. We met with local legal counsel, local tax counsel. We set up an entity. We set up a bank account. We funded it. We leased an office. We started hiring people. And, um, you know, we got it done. And, 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 and it, it was crazy because – they just kept giving me more to do, even though I had no idea what I was doing. And my, my, my learning there was, you know, once you get over the fear that you don't know what you're doing, if you just put your head down and you think it through, 
you'll probably come up with the right answer. Um, now, a critical piece of that equation is that you have to have the unwavering support of your leadership. Because I couldn't have made it if, you know, my, my management team didn't have total faith in me. And, and that's a principle that I apply with my team. I'll often give them tasks that I know they're not qualified for just to see how they attack it. But you, you've got to give them total support. And on that one, you know, hustle matters as well. And then I think on my third one, probably on my, you know, CFO journey, was my first CFO gig. So I left Oracle uh, around uh, 1990. I spent 10 years there, and I wanted to become a CFO. So I took my first CFO job in 2001, and this was right after the dot bomb. And we had a lot of small software companies that had raised capital, grown very quickly, were then contracting. So I joined a software company that was actually in the process of putting two companies together. And I joined the company, and within about the first week, the CEO told me, uh, okay, Brett, welcome to the team. Um, we need you to develop a plan and develop and execute a plan to cut about a third of the headcount, which was about 850 jobs. And I was like, oof, you know, now I have to decide who stays, who goes, what severance they get, if any, what benefits they get, if any, how do we handle, you know, special circumstances. And it, that was the experience that just hit me right in the center of the head. It was like the, the palm to the palm to the forehead moment that the decisions made by the CFO have enormous impact on people's lives. This is not crunching numbers. These are decisions that really impact people's lives. And so that realization has stayed with me, you know, since then. There were a lot of companies in trouble, just for context, uh, for everyone to think back to that moment in time. Uh, was it always a finance role in Oracle? It seems like in many, you, you might have wore many hats along the way. And uh, just the growth of that organization over the period you were there allowed you to get sort of a taste for business beyond finance. Did you always see yourself as a finance executive? I, I guess what I'm getting at is I think you could have gone any number of directions after Oracle. Right. So my role, it's interesting. Um, I was, you know, part of the field organization. So at Oracle, there was the corporate finance group, which had accounting, FP&A, and then the business unit. So my first seven years, I was part of the, the business unit that included Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, India, and Central Asia. They used to joke that they put me in the team that were countries where nobody wanted to go. Um, and my role was, my job was finance, but it you know, it, it covered everything around business management. So it covered into legal, into HR, because, you know, I was kind of the guy responsible for Oracle Argentina or Oracle Brazil or Oracle India, and I was the part of the U.S. management team who had to have a really good understanding of what was going on there. So I partnered very, very closely with the international managing director and then the managing director in those countries to make sure that the business was running smoothly. So so you're right, I, I could have gone in other roles. My last three years there, I was tired of traveling after seven years, um, so I, I decided to take a U.S. job. So I took a job as the head of finance for the U.S. consulting organization. After about three months, my boss left, so then I was back in charge of worldwide, um, in charge of finance for worldwide services, which when I left was about $3 billion in revenue. It was about a third of the company and about 15,000 employees. 
so it was a big business. Um, but I was um, really a finance business advisor, I would say, to to the senior executive, a guy named Robert Shaw there, uh, who ran that piece of business. So I could have gone a different, number of different ways. Um, my my core competence is is finance. Um, I really enjoy it. And I think I enjoy it because it gives you a view of the entire organization. There, there aren't a whole lot of other jobs in the company other than maybe the CEO where you get to participate in every single aspect of the business. You get to participate in the planning. You get to participate in the managing, the advising. You get to look back after a year and see if what you thought was going to happen actually happened. Um, and so it gives you a really, really uh, unique view. And then I also really enjoy it because it gives you uh, access um, all the way to the top. So certainly, you know, as a CFO, you, you have access to the CEO, the management team, but you also have access to the board, um, which, which is um, a great learning opportunity. And it's also a great opportunity to, you know, instruct them in the business, give them a different perspective of the business than maybe the CEO, so they're fully informed. So I love it because I just have free reign throughout the entire company and I get to, you know, impart wisdom. Now that I have gray hair, I, I feel uh, I'm somewhat entitled to uh, impart wisdom, and it's, it's, it's just fun. Now, beyond those chapters that you, you shared a lot of detail for us on, which are really interesting parts of your career, you've had several CFO tours of duty today, several, meaning more than three, five, close to five. I, and and I'm, I'm curious, uh, we can't, we can't go into each one uh, with you, unfortunately, but you arrive at Mind Body, and you, you've had these other tours of duty. What is it, what is this opportunity now? And we want to learn about its offerings and, and, and give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about it. But as a company, what did you find attractive having now been this sort of seasoned CFO that's done it and, and led a, a number of mid-sized companies to transactions one after another, what is it about mind and body that got you interested? So I would say, um, so I originally got the call from a, from a headhunter, and, you know, I spent my entire career in Silicon Valley. I got the call from a headhunter, and, the, and they called me and said, well, let me tell you about this, this company. Here's their, here's their market. And I'm like, wow. You know, so our market is, the wellness services industry, so boutique fitness businesses, salons, spas. I'm like, well, that's a huge market, and here's how many, you know, and the, the recruiter told me, and here's how many they have. It's a recurring revenue model. It's a SaaS business and includes the payments model. So I'm like, okay, so no more of this end-of-quarter, you know, fingernail-chewing stuff. It's all high visibility, highly recurring. Uh, they had an A-list of investors with, Bessemer and IVP, and so some really smart people had done their diligence. And then I came down and met the CEO, and uh, he's really an amazing guy. He, he started the company, you know, with, a, with his high school buddy in his garage. He served as a nuclear submarine officer, very smart, very passionate, very focused. And then, you know, he introduced me to the company and the company culture, and the company culture is quite extraordinary. You know, we used to say that, you know, companies I've worked at in the past, their, their core values were written on the back of their business cards, but nobody actually knew what they were. And here the company's core values are front and center for everyone. And um, you, 
you know, we, we hire by them, we fire by them, uh, we promote by them, and, and they're real. And um, when you align around a set of core values, it gets everybody focused in the, in the same direction, and it has enormous value for the customers. And then I think lastly, the customer base we're serving, it's, these are not, this is very tangible, was very tangible for me. You know, I worked at a massive global database company, and I, I knew what a database was, and I'd actually met some people who had used databases, but it wasn't, it wasn't personal. And, you know, meeting a small business owner who has five employees and they're trying to make a living, and you have this powerful platform where you can re- literally make or break their business. You can help them grow, uh, or if you mess up, you can kill their business. And so knowing that we had you know, tens of thousands, now over 65,000 of these business owners relying on us for their livelihood made it just really, really real for me. And so I'm like, wow, if we can make these people's business successful and work a little bit harder every single day um, to, to, to help them realize their passion, uh, was, I think for me it was just an extraordinary opportunity. Now, can you tell us something about your team? I mean, when you arrived there, did you want to reorganize it or uh, add some skill sets? Or what uh, was the first order of business in terms of the finance organization? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's kind of classic private company wanting to go public. And, you know, I've done this a few times. And, and basically you come in and you've got a team who are, you know, they're generally running on QuickBooks. They're, you know, they're good at, you know, paying the bills and, and, and billing and collecting revenue, but they're not, you know, they're not staffed for, to be a public company. So the first thing, you know, I did is I, you know, came in and just assessed the team. I, you know, I, I collected resumes from everyone. I interviewed every single person on their team, on the team to assess their strengths and their personal and professional goals. And then the next task was to design the target org chart and slotting in the existing team members into the appropriate roles and starting the hiring process for the open roles. Uh, We were working against a pretty tight timeline, so we had to move quite quickly. Um, We had a couple of team members that opted out, and the great thing about my body is we were able to move them into other roles in the company um, where they they remain today almost, almost six years later. Uh, and the most of the rest of the team just dug in and have built very successful career paths for themselves. So it's really, you know, assess the team, assess the requirements, start filling slots. Very cool. Now, tell us a little bit about uh, what are the numbers you're watching uh, very closely right now, day to day. What are the top of mind metrics for you? So just over half of our revenue is subscription revenue, and almost 40% of our revenue is is what we call payments revenue, which is revenue that we earn off of processing our customers' uh, payments. So the, the, the number one number I look at every morning, in fact, I get an automated email every morning, uh, I have it with my, my cup of coffee, is, is the sales data. So what is the, the value of the revenue that we closed through sales uh, the previous day? And that's monthly subscription revenue. We call it MSR. So Average, you know, daily MSR, what, how much MSR did we add every day? And then I also look at churn, how much, how much MSR did we lose in churn? Uh, the next one is payments volume. What's the, the volume of payments transactions 
flowing through the, our platform, and that's important to understand because it tells us how our businesses are doing, but it's also, in an aggregate level, a very important barometer of how the industry is doing. Uh, and then the next one I look at pretty closely is what we call uh, dollar-based net expansion. So that tells us how much revenue we are earning from a particular customer year over year, so on a yearly basis. So that tells us how their business is growing, are they buying more software and services, or are they, you know, downgrading. And that tells us a lot about how, how, how good a job we're doing and delivering value on our software and our services. I'm curious. I mentioned that you had been CFO at several different companies now, many of them mid-sized, fast-growth firms. Even back to your Oracle days, there were numbers that you were always studying very closely. As you look at the number of different tools that have been introduced over the last 15 years, the visibility that you enjoy today, do you ever think back, wow, you know, 10 years ago, I, I had no idea about, about this piece of the business. Now I can look into it. I mean, is that what you're experiencing, or would you tell me, no, in fact, it's the same three numbers I've been chasing after most of my career? Um, can you reflect on that a little and, and give me a, a dose of reality here? Sure. We're led to believe that you're enjoying greater visibility in real time than ever. What are the realities? Sure. So, you know, the reality is the, you know, the, the SaaS, you know, so, you know, the SaaS business really created by arguably Salesforce is relatively new. Um, and so we look at a lot of the same metrics that we used to, but the big difference, the profound difference is the, the uh, level of detail and the timeliness. So historically you would look at, you know, um, SaaS revenue, so revenue added to the platform monthly, maybe in aggregate, or maybe weekly in aggregate, it would be an estimate. Now we can see it daily. We can actually get real-time feeds from our data mart um, on exactly how much subscription revenue has been added, exactly what the trend is, um, the access to payment information, not only in the aggregate, but what is being spent by whom, where, you know, is, is how is the how are the transactions occurring? Are they more biased towards a card not present transaction, which would be via the mobile app, or via recurring payments, or is it more of a card present transaction? So I would say the, the level of detail we get is much, much greater now, and, and the timeliness is much greater now, which is, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, a blessing because the things that you used to understand weekly, you now can understand daily. But the curse is there's just so much data available that you could spend the entire day just sifting through the day's results. So uh, it's really important that you have a mechanism and a team that can ingest that data and produce what I call so what for the management team so we know the three or five things that we need to understand uh, happen with the business that we can action immediately. And so we don't just produce, you know, reams and reams and reams and data and dashboards and things like that, and it's just, just too much to consume. Uh, is, there a, is there a particular metric, and there may not be, but is there a particular metric that maybe since your arrival you've attempted to sort of raise its profile or put some extra luster on with your team um, to better educate the organization about 
you know, what's what's happening or a certain dynamic in the business? Anything come to mind? And well, uh, I would say not necessarily a metric because um, they're, the key metrics are pretty straightforward. I think the thing that I focused most on is um, really um, developing what I call a, a so what style of communication and making sure that my team, the finance team, when they're communicating, they're telling people exactly what's happening, you know, three to five critical pieces of information that people need to understand. And they need to tailor that communication to the audience. And so um, we, we have developed a number of tools and, and um, meeting cadences where we will discuss weekly, monthly, what are the so what's in the, the subscriber business? What are the so what's in the payments business? And it really helps get us aligned. So I don't think there's any new metrics that I came up with, but you know, I'd like to think that I've had some positive impact on getting the, um, the basic information that we need crystallized and communicated in a way that the management team and the, and the, and the broader uh, leadership team can understand and then therefore cascade and action. Now you use the uh, expression, I've been hearing finance leaders use the same phrase, sort of meeting cadence. Are you, do you have a philosophy about meetings? How and when you like to have them or, or how infrequent you like to have them? I, or would you like to have more frequently? Sure. So, you know, there's, there's, um, so first of all, it's, it's interesting. We just recently had a training course. The entire executive team had a full-day training course on how to have a meeting. Um, and it's, it's a pretty powerful session. But, you know, there's, there's a few types of meetings. The ones that I focus on um, are um, very, um, you know, they're scheduled. So, you know, we're going to have a, you know, each week we have a meeting cadence. So, uh, so for example, Tuesday mornings, we have what's called the executive briefing, and that would be VPs and above, and we will, it's actually a stand-up. You can't sit down, and uh, subject matter experts would come through and read off their stats for the week, and so we would look at trends for the week, and so these would be monthly subscription revenue added, monthly subscription revenue churned, payments volumes, uh, the consumer activity, how many, book, how many classes and appointments were booked for our app, uh, things like that. So that's rapid fire, and we really look at trends. Um, then the next day uh, is is Wednesday. Would be each Wednesday morning we have what we call vital signs, and that's a broader group of people, and we do a deep dive into a particular subject. So, for example, one week we would do what we call subscriber so what, and the, the FP&A team would stand up and tell us, hey, here's what we learned, and this would be um, really around monthly results. Here's what happened with subscribers in the month of February. Uh, here's what happened to the salon group. Here's what happened to the fitness group. Uh, you know, we grew this segment by this amount. Uh, here's how Europe is doing. Here's how North America is doing. Um, here's what products are selling. Here's the average sale price. And so they'll really do a deep dive. And so the weekly cadence um, follows the Tuesday morning meetings um, for the VPs and above, then we roll into an executive staff meeting Tuesday afternoon, then Wednesday morning we have vitals. And we have found these standard meeting games to be very, very effective because everybody has time to prepare. Everybody knows exactly who's going to be there and the type of questions they're going to be um, expected. 
found is that having the team members prepare for these meetings is the most important part because they just learn so much about their business. I mean, you don't want to put up a slide Wednesday morning with a line that's going up or down and have the CEO ask you, what does that mean, and not be able to answer that question, right? So they, they spend a lot of time digging in and understanding what's in their business, and they kind of create their own learning mechanism by just preparing for the meeting. So the meeting is pretty quick, uh, but the preparation that goes into it requires the team members to really dig in, and that, that's the most um, that's the most beneficial part of the whole thing. Now, uh, one more question on, on metrics, and, and I think you might have already mentioned a few, but uh, we're, we're asking finance leaders about whether they've added certain non-financial metrics to their sort of mix these days. Is there one in particular that they're they're uh, seeking to, to calculate frequently? And it might be the net promoter score. It might be uh, something related to the workforce. But are, are non-financial metrics uh, – part of your world, a bigger part of your world today? Um, yeah, they are. Um, so we've got the standard ones that we've talked about, and then we have metrics that we use to understand what's happening in the businesses that we support. So one of them that we keep a very close eye on is the number of, number of classes and appointment bookings. Uh, so that would be, you know, how many classes and appointments were taken by consumers at our customer location. Um, and so, for example, last quarter there were almost 190 million classes, and so we like to see a nice growth in that number because that says that the industry overall is healthy. Uh, you may have some businesses closing, some businesses opening, but in aggregate we see that more and more people are engaged in wellness activities, so that's a really good number to keep an eye on. Um, we also keep a close eye on how many consumers are engaged with businesses on our platform. So that's right now about almost 60 million. And, you know, it kind of helps us correlate how many consumers are, 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 are actively engaged. Um, and if that number is growing, then, then we're in a good place. Um, we also look at things like um, the number of uh, consumers that are using our app to book classes and appointments and the frequency in which they do that. We are building um, a marketplace for wellness, um, a place where consumers, you know, the idea is eventually be the go-to place that you go for your wellness services. And keeping an eye on consumer adoption uh, is a super important part of that. We're, you know, you know, currently millions of consumers use MyBody to more easily find, engage, and transact with fitness, wellness, and beauty providers. And so that's an important part of our, our business opportunity down the road. When we come back, CFO Brett White will share a finance strategic moment after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. 
To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Um, 
really love the role when folks come and say, hey, can you help me with this? Can you help me think this through? How would you approach this? And then, you know, as I get gray hair, I, I earn the right to, to teach business acumen. So you have a lot of folks who are really good at their skill or their craft. And, you know, I think many people just take it for granted, but a lot of folks are real strong on what it takes to run a business, how the business actually works. And so being able to mentor and teach people, like, here's how our business actually works. Here's the unique economics of our customer relationship. Here's how this can work. So I, we, use, we have this, this metric in our company called uh, when we compare the lifetime value of a customer uh, compared to the cost to acquire the customer. So it's LTV to cap. And the lifetime value of the customer is affected by a number of things. The products they, they buy, the success of their business, the churn rate. And, and I remember when I went and taught the concept of lifetime value divided by the cost to acquire to the engineering team, that the product team, their eyes just lit up. Because then they realized, wow, I can improve this metric by reducing churn. You know, the, the, the biggest driver in the calculation is churn. So they're sitting there thinking, well, if I just make the product a little bit better or fix this one annoying thing, that could reduce churn and have a, a huge impact on the metric. So it, it's a metric that really understood, uh, resonated very well throughout all the departments of the company because everybody felt they could affect one of the drivers. Uh, so for me, just, you know, teaching that is, is very, very rewarding. Now, the next question is really, I'd like to zero in at that point in your career uh, where you sort of did the transition that happened. That's kind of interesting because you were really in a large enterprise, right? So you had much first, uh, big numbers of employees, and then you moved into the CFO world, these mid-sized companies, somewhat smaller, you had big jobs, open. you had a lot of responsibility and accountability almost. However, it's the first time you're, in, you're really in the seat. It's the CEO, yourself, and the board. And, and that first time you step into one of those roles where you are the CFO, what is that piece of advice that someone has given you? And again, it seems to me that, you know, you've already well, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head because I think the first piece of advice I wish someone gave me is, whoa, uh, this is a lot different than what you have been doing. Um, and you're exactly right. The big um, the big thing what there is is there's no one above you in business. There's no one to go to for advice. There's no one to defer to. The safety net is gone. And all the other members of the executive team are looking to you for the answer and for the expertise. And so it kind of reminded me of back in the old days when I was just in South America doing something I didn't know how to do. You know, it, it comes full circle because here you're thinking, you know, you're thinking that down. So it, it was interesting. About three months into my first CEO role, uh, my CEO came to me and he said, Fred, you're doing a great job as a VP of finance, but that's not the role I hired you for. 
And that was the palm to the forehead, like, oh, I need to up my game in a big way. And all the skills that got me here are just a tiny subset of the skills I need to be successful going forward. Um, and really the greatest value uh, your whole role is as a business partner and a trusted advisor to the management team. So the thing I wish someone had told me is that you're a kid. It's a lot different than what you're used to. And the skills you, you earn to this day or your developing stage can be a very, very small part of the job that you need to do. So, uh, you know, being good at, at numbers is just, just not enough. And uh, it, was, it was a rough lesson, but uh, I got through it. Build a scalable platform for growth 
Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.